Well, good morning. It is exciting. I've been looking forward to this morning to be uh, back in the pulpit and to bring God's word to you. I'm excited about this word and um, thankful for the last three weeks and the time of adjustment that our family has had as we've welcomed new life. And we are just overwhelmed with gratitude to all of you for the incredible expressions of care and love and generosity as you have brought meals to us. Those have been delicious. And uh, not only is the the food good, but what means so much to us as as we sit down and enjoy those is just knowing the, the love and support that we have from this church family. And you all mean so much to us. And so on behalf of our family, thank you to all of you. So in September of 2015, uh, the New York Times ran an opinion piece entitled Googling for God. And in it, Seth Stevens Davidowitz analyzed Google trends, Google analytics, data about how Americans search on Google. And he writes this, the number one God-related question in the country is who created God? The most asked, most Googled questions Americans are wondering about. Who created God? Second, why does God allow suffering? The third most Googled question about God is this. Why does God hate me? Why does God hate me? Now, what Google Analytics can't tell us is what lies behind that question. What's going on in the lives of so many Americans that would lead them to this conclusion, or at least this question, this this wondering about why God hates them? I mean, it could be trivial things, right? People just might kind of develop this complex, like, I got a flat tire on my way to work, or maybe to a job interview, and I missed the interview, and I didn't get the job, so God hates me. He's against me. could be trivial things like that. It could be profoundly painful experiences in life, like a miscarriage, the death of a, a family member. could be a failed business venture or another failed relationship. But there seems to be, at least because of these uh, Google searches, this widespread sense that people have that God is against them. They're not exactly okay with God, and he is actively trying to thwart them in some way, that, that there is some kind of cosmic conspiracy against them. And I just wonder this morning, what is it for you What are the the things in your life that provoke that thought, that wondering in your mind? Is God punishing me? Did did this happen because God is out to get me for something I did? Does God want me to be unhappy? Where, Where does your mind go when life goes sideways? Where do your thoughts about God go when you run into resistance, challenges, friction, hard things in life, is there ever that nagging suspicion in the back of your mind, God is against me in this? I know that for Barbara and me, throughout this last pregnancy, we both in our own times, in our own ways, battled fear. Uh, My thoughts constantly drifted back to that ominous feeling that something was gonna go wrong in this pregnancy. To to me, it didn't seem so much like if, it just seemed more like what is it gonna be and when. All the way through the entire labor, every nurse who walked in the room, the suspicion in the back of my mind was, oh no, what's wrong? 
because of a past experience we had had. So suffering can have that kind of effect on us where we just develop this sense, I just know it's going to happen, right? Something's going to go wrong. That's just the way it is. But it's especially dangerous when that leads to the suspicion, why does God hate me? So as human beings made in the image of God, we are constantly trying to organize and to categorize and arrange and make sense of the, the data. But as fallen human beings, we tend towards suspicion, maybe even superstition, right? You ever, you ever say something like that? Even jokingly, like, oh, I'm just cursed. If you're a Minnesota Vikings fan, you feel like that every time a kicker walks on. We are just cursed. And people say jokingly, the football gods hate us. They don't want us to be happy. And we say it jokingly, and yet something in our minds just thinks, but seriously, what is going on? I was in my late teens, early 20s. I was home visiting my family. My parents were invited by another family over to their house for a dinner. And um, the adults were sitting on the back porch, and they had a bunch of younger kids. I have younger siblings, and they were running around in and out of the house. And their, one of their sons just came cruising through indoors, coming toward the porch, full speed, ran into the screen door and popped the screen door out and he came tumbling out on top of it, lands on it, and right on his, his, on his heels is his three or four-year-old brother. And as the, the parents jump up, this little kid says, oh man, we always have these kind of problems. <laughs> and I just said, for a four-year-old, what a remarkable interpretive statement. I mean, maybe he's been through a lot in his four years. We always have these kind of problems. I mean, what is he, what kind of trouble? Maybe he's been the culprit of some property damage before, but evidently they always have these kinds of problems. And my guess is for you, there's some area in your life where you you just kind of have that suspicion, like, I know, I know what's going to happen to me as soon as I take a risk, as soon as I step out there. And if you don't relate to that, you probably work with someone who does. You might be sitting next to someone who does. As humans, we just find ourselves suspicious that maybe God doesn't actually love us that much. So I want to turn to Genesis 42 with you. And I'm I'm confident that you will find encouragement and assurance for your soul in this text. And It's a lengthy narrative. I'm going to read most of it. I'm going to read through verse 29 and then jump ahead to the end at verse 35. You can follow along in a Bible, Genesis 42, or it's on the the screen here. This is God's holy and authoritative and transformational word. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers. For he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized 
his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. (laughs) Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it's the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, our 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested, by the life of Pharaoh. If you shall not, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother, while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. And let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And this was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened. Jumping ahead to verse 35, as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. And Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, it's your own word that tells us that these things written about people and events that happened long ago, they were written down for our instruction and for our encouragement And so we are trusting you and the presence of your Holy Spirit to make 
these words, this narrative in Genesis 42 come alive to us, that you would give your abundant grace to our souls, that we might be encouraged and instructed and built up, that our faith in you would be secured by your own doing and your own words. So make that happen now for your glory and for our good. Amen. So my aim this morning through this narrative is to convince you, to, to convince you that you would know and trust and believe and be totally assured in your soul that if you are in Christ Jesus by faith, then God is for you and not against you. God is for you and not against you, no matter your past sins. God is for you if you are in Jesus. No matter your present circumstances, God is for you if you are in Christ Jesus. And I say that my aim is to convince you because we've all heard that, and on some level we know that's true, and yet the reality is we don't always trust it. We're not always fully convinced that it's true for us. I found that it's much easier for me to tell someone else, God loves you, God is for you, than it is for me to believe in my own heart that he's for me personally. And so I'm trusting God through his word to convince you of that. God is forming a company of peoples. That's what we call this sermon series, becoming a company of peoples. And his repeated covenant promise to his people could be summed up in these simple words like Leviticus 26, 12, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And he says that again and again and again throughout the Old and New Testament. But if God is going to be God to a people, and they are going to be the people of that God, God means for those people to be convinced that he is for them. That's what it means to have a God, that he would be working for us. And so that promise is stated in Jeremiah 32, 40 like this. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. That's God's covenant promise. And I think there are two kinds of people in the world who wonder, why does God hate me? And I think they're dramatically portrayed in this text. There are the unbelieving and the guilty. The unbelieving are the people who either don't know or don't trust God's promises. And so they misinterpret every adverse circumstance they face in life as proof. God just wants me to be miserable. God is against me. That's that, from a place of unbelief. And for those who are aware of their own guilt, their moral responsibility before God, their consciences condemn them. And so they interpret everything adverse as punishment. I know he's just looking to strike me for what I've done. That's probably why this went bad in my life. Do you ever interpret hard things in life from a position of unbelief and self-pity like Jacob does in this text? Look at Jacob. He possessed the most remarkable promises of God's faithfulness. God had appeared to Jacob, not once, multiple times. God had appeared to him and spoken to him that's incredible. Listen to the kinds of things God said to him. Genesis 28, 15, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. 
What a word from God. And as if that's not enough, God repeats it in Genesis 35, 11. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. A line of royalty is going to come in your descendants, Jacob. I'm going to make it happen because I am God Almighty. And Jacob, at this point in his life, does not just have God's promise. He has the past experience of God's faithfulness. Remember all that time he spent working for his deceitful uncle Laban who ripped him off over and over? Genesis 31, Jacob looks back on that experience and he says to his wives, the God of my father has been with me. What did God say to him? I will be with you. I will not leave you. And Jacob leaves Laban saying, God has been with me. I know he's been with me because your father has cheated me and he has changed my wages 10 times, but God did not permit him to harm me. But at this point in Jacob's life, Genesis 42, he's been through a famine. His son Joseph has been gone for 20 years. His sons come back from Egypt where they're trying to buy grain so they can survive this famine. And all of these circumstances just expose this despair and unbelief in Jacob's heart. So that in verse 36, look what he laments. All this has come against me. Or the NIV says, everything is against me. That's his interpretive framework at this point in his life. It's all against me. Everywhere I turn, it's just opposition. It's just sorrow and heartache. No, I'm not sending Benjamin with you. I know what's going to happen. He's going to die too. Noticeably absent from his statement here is any mention of the God who had made lavish promises to him, which says a lot. Jacob's unbelief is evident in his attitudes of fear and his despair, his sorrow that bookend this narrative. It opens and closes with Jacob in fear and grief. And because of that unbelief, he misinterprets his circumstances. So it's true, Joseph has been in prison, what, 20 years absent from Jacob. Simeon is in Egypt, but Jacob comes to the conclusion everything is against him. And when he thinks about the future, all he can imagine is more misery and heartache. And maybe some of you can relate to that kind of paradigm. Where have you responded to hard things in your life with a little bit more of a jaded attitude, a little bit more pessimism, a little bit more self-protection, Where do you see those tendencies in your own heart? Or maybe you relate to the 10 brothers here and you interpret adversity through a lens of guilt like they do. I mean, it's been 20 years since they did what they did to Joseph. I mean, they they meant to murder him and then they cut him some slack and they just sold him for money instead and pocketed the profit. Then they went home and they lied to their dad about it. And they have not broken that conspiracy for 20 years. That's hard to do. 10 people keeping the same cover-up for 20 years? That's impressive. I mean, these guys are committed to their story. They don't want Jacob to know what they did. I mean, they already know he doesn't like them very much. 20 years later, 
when they run into some hard things down in Egypt, their consciences are immediately troubled. Look at verse 21. They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we didn't listen. That is why they are interpreting this hardship in Egypt, far away from where everything happened. They're all shot back to that moment going, oh my gosh, this is why. God is punishing us. Verse 22 Reuben answered them, I told you not to sin against the boy, and you didn't listen. And so now there comes a reckoning. They have in their minds the sense of guilt. We should pay for what we did. And we haven't paid yet. Maybe this is it. They, they just know around any corner it could be. God is just waiting for them to strike them for what they did to Joseph. But it's on their way back when they find the money that they bring God into all of it. And they look at each other with fear and trembling. Their hearts failed them, the narrator says. And their question, what is this that God has done to us? So a guilty conscience tends to misinterpret everything as punishment. There's truth here. They are guilty. And there's truth here. God is up to something in them. But God is actually process of reconciling them to Joseph and saving them in fulfillment of all of the promises that he made to their great-grandfather Abraham. He's not in the process of destroying them, but they don't see that or know that. I think the original audience Moses wrote this for, the Israelites wandering in the desert, they needed this narrative because they repeatedly thought God was trying to kill them. You ever notice that if you read through Exodus and Leviticus? What are they constantly saying? Look at Exodus 14, 11. When they're at the Red Sea, the Egyptian army is barreling down on them. There's still just a sea, a body of water on the other side. They're trapped, and they cry out to Moses. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt. And we could go to Exodus 5 and Exodus 16 and Exodus 17 and Numbers 16 where they say to Moses over and over and over literally these words, you are trying to kill us. And it's actually the exact opposite. But that's what they were convinced of. So they needed this narrative. And I wonder about you. Do do you ever think suspicious thoughts about God or do you doubt his motives? Or do you assume he's against you? I want, I want to show you in the rest of the time that we have how God was at work in this story sovereignly and mercifully and redemptively for Jacob and for his sons through the very circumstances that they kept misinterpreting to mean that God was out to get them. I mean, here is the grace that God means to communicate to you through this text. God wants you to be sure he's for you if you're in Christ Genesis 42 assures you God is sovereignly at work, even when you can't see how. Moses wants his audience to know God is at work throughout this narrative, and he does that by creating dramatic irony, but by sharing his omniscient perspective. As the author, he knows how things turn out. And whenever the author clues the audience into more information than the characters in the story have, that creates this sense of irony where we know what's happening and we're watching it unfold and they don't know what's happening. Look at how these two verses are back to back. 
the very last verse of what we call chapter 41 and the very first verse of what we call 42, put these together. Chapter 41 ends like this. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. The very next verse says, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, go down and buy grain there. The author means for us to put these together and say, that's Joseph. They're going to see Joseph. We know what's about to happen, even though Jacob and his sons are clueless. We know Joseph is in Egypt. They don't. We know Joseph is the one, the one in charge of selling food. He's in charge of all the storehouses. Jacob and his sons don't. We know and Joseph knows that this is a God-ordained famine. Jacob doesn't know that. His sons don't know that. Remember uh, Genesis 41, 32, when Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams and he says the doubling of the dreams means that this thing is fixed. This is from God. God is going to bring it about. That tells us this famine is God's doing. God is up to something and we're supposed to know that and recognize Jacob doesn't recognize what God is up to in all of this. God is at work sovereignly. We know that God was the one behind Joseph's rise to second in command in Egypt. We've seen that narrative play out. God was in that. Jacob has no idea. Joseph recognizes his brothers when they show up, and they don't recognize him. And the repetition of this fact is meant to land on us. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. That's supposed to be a clue to us this is God's doing. Remember those dreams? This is the fulfillment of God's word to Joseph over 20 years ago. God is in this. We're supposed to know that. This entire narrative is a dramatic picture of how God works in your life and my life. There is a contrast throughout this narrative between Joseph's knowledge and his awareness and his recognition and his brother's complete ignorance. It's in knowledge and with wisdom of the situation that Joseph takes steps in response to his brothers. And they are in the dark the whole time. But we're supposed to know this plan that Joseph is working out, it's a plan. There's purpose behind it, even though the brothers don't understand it. So in the same way, God always acts in your life out of his omniscience, out of his wisdom, out of his goodness, out of his character, even when you don't know what's going on. God knows your ignorance has no effect on God's goodness and omnipotence. You and I are finite. And you ever notice what unbelieving imagination does with ignorance? There's an area of ignorance. We fill it in with the, the worst case scenario. We take ignorance and our imagination just runs wild with it. We're like kids who imagine there are monsters in the closet or some boogeyman in the basement. I mean, the fear you feel is real. I remember as a kid running up the stairs from the basement, just I, somebody was right behind me. I was sure I could feel it. Right? The fear is, you actually feel the fear. There's just no one there. The fear's real, the monsters aren't. All of the fear and the distress and the anxiety and the sorrow that Jacob and his sons show in this chapter is actually out of sync with what's really happening. These are God's chosen people. 
They're a dysfunctional family. They are sinful and messed up, but God said he was going to do something with them. He said he was going to make them a company of peoples, and that's what he's doing in this chapter. And so you too can rest assured that God is always acting for your good, even when you, like Joseph's brothers, are more aware of your own weakness and your own ignorance and your own distress and your own guilt than you are aware of any of God's glorious and redemptive purposes. You can trust. You can trust that God is at work mercifully. I mean, for the brothers, that meant God was actually, what was he up to? He, he wasn't out to destroy them and nail them for their sin. He was out to redeem them from their sin. He was working here. He, he begins his work here, and it's going to play out over the next several chapters. It's actually going to play out over two more trips to Egypt and 17 more years as God changes them, forgives their sins, transforms their hearts, and reconciles them, spoiler alert, to Joseph. That's what God is up to. We know that God is at work with merciful purposes toward these guilty brothers because Joseph's response, though he does deal harshly with them, it was not vengeful. Three times Joseph said he was testing them. And testing them is different than punishing them. They, they said to him in verse 11, we are honest men. And the irony of that, <laughs> they haven't even told their dad what they did to their brother 20 years ago. And they're, they're begging this guy, we are, we're just a bunch of good guys. And he knows exactly what they did to him when he begged them for mercy. And so he says to them in verse 15, by this you shall be tested. Verse 16, that your words may be tested, whether there is actually any truth in you. Verse 19, if you are honest men, as you say. Verse 20, so your words will be verified. What is he up to? He can't just say, guys, it's me, Joseph. Good to see you. For all he knows, they haven't changed at all. Maybe they're even more hard-hearted than they were 20 years ago. Maybe their reaction to him in this moment would be to all jump on him and kill him like they meant to do. He doesn't know, and so he sets out to test them. But if he wanted to destroy them, he could have. He was second in command to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, the only one greater than you in all the land is me. So if he wanted to, he could have had them all executed because they looked at him funny, and nobody in Egypt would have questioned his decision. Look, if, if God wanted to destroy these brothers, like they fear, he could have. Remember Judah's sons, Ur and Onan? The Lord put them to death because they were wicked. God can do that. He can strike somebody down in a moment. But if you're still breathing, then God is demonstrating patience. And his patience always has a merciful purpose, which is your repentance. Second Peter 3 says, the Lord is patient toward you. He's not wishing that anyone should perish. God wants all to reach repentance. That's what God wants. That is merciful beyond our wildest imagination. And so we are to count the patience of our Lord as salvation. The fact that these brothers are still alive, the fact that Joseph doesn't have them executed, we are to count that as salvation. God is up to something merciful in them. And so he puts their character under pressure that it might be revealed, right? He accuses them of espionage, maybe to get more information about Benjamin. For all he knows, maybe Benjamin was killed by them too. So he 
accuses them of being spies to draw more information out. He locks them up for three days, and it's in that moment. I just wonder what they looked at each other's faces and recognized the terror in their eyes, like, oh my gosh, I've seen that look before. That's the look I saw on Joseph's face when we locked him up. It's coming back on us. And yet in that conviction and awareness of their guilt is a merciful purpose. Conviction of sin is always, always gracious. It's always good for our souls to admit when we are guilty before God. He keeps Simeon as a hostage, not because he's messing with them, not because he's trying to be mean to them. Remember, he was going to keep all nine and send one back. Three days later, he had a change of mind. He keeps one and sends nine so the nine can take food. He's being merciful and generous to them. And then he frames them as thieves. My my whole life, I've read this narrative thinking, what is he doing? Why? I, I think he's testing their brotherly loyalty and their honesty and their greed. When they come back, are they gonna say anything about the money or not? We'll see. Will they even come back for Simeon or are they gonna leave him like they left me? If they come back with Benjamin and they have the opportunity to, are they going to hand him over to get rid of him? All of this is to expose, is anything changing in their hearts? And there's evidence that something is. Joseph is testing them and God is in the process of transforming them. And they cry out, what has God done to us? They become aware. I think the real question they should be asking here is, what is God doing in us? What is God up to in us? Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. If you are in Christ, then count it all as grace, discipline. None of it is vengeful punishment. It's all meant to shape you and your soul for your good. And so you can be confident, even pangs of guilt are good for your soul if they lead you to cry out to God and rest in him. It's all grace. It's all mercy. And you can be confident that God is at work redemptively. We see that in how God is dealing with Jacob here. For Jacob, it meant that God was restoring and preserving his faith in God's promises. So so Jacob is busy imagining the pain of three dead sons. Joseph is gone. Simeon is gone. Now you want to take Benjamin from me. But God is actually in the process of doing something beyond anything Jacob could have imagined. When Jacob is reunited with Joseph in chapter 48, he, he says, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring. Never dreamed of it. That's kindness, and that's redemption. But God is up to something even more than just bringing Jacob and Joseph back together. Before that happens, God wants to do something even more fundamentally necessary in Jacob's heart. He's going to deal with Jacob's idolatry. So so Jacob's hope has become misplaced. Somewhere along the line, Jacob's hope shifted from the God who had made these promises to bless him and multiply him. His hope had shifted to a son instead, and all of his hope was wrapped up in Joseph. And so this idolatrous tunnel vision just made Jacob blind. He could only see this one son. And so instead of trusting the promises of God, we see Jacob here wallowing in sorrow and despair and self-pity. Look at what he says at the end of chapter 42. Very last verse. 
He says to nine of his living sons, my son, that is Benjamin, shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. You imagine how that just cut through their hearts? Nine sons and he says, I've only got one son left and you're gonna take him from me? All of Jacob's hope is wrapped up in Benjamin. It was in Joseph, and now it's in Benjamin, and he's convinced that none of God's promises could come true apart from this only son he has left. That is idolatrous, and it's a problem. It's the very thing that God put to the test in his grandfather, Abraham, when God called Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Do you remember God's words when he stopped Abraham at the last moment, and he said to him, stop. Now I know that you fear me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love. Now I know you treasure me more. God always desires the full and exclusive devotion of his people, and he's working redemptively to produce that in Jacob to free his heart from idolatry. This is all kindness. It's all generous. And look what happens to Jacob's heart in chapter 48. When he goes to bless Joseph's sons, he starts by speaking of the God in whose name he's going to bless these boys. And he says, God has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. He has redeemed me from all evil. That's what God is up to. One day, Jacob is going to be able to look back on this season of sorrow and pain in his life and say, God was my shepherd He led me through all of that heartache. He led me through all of my fears and he redeemed me from evil because he is redemptive. So I said my aim was to convince you God is for you and not against you. And yet it's possible that after all this you could object. That's great for Jacob and for his sons. I mean, they had dreams, they had visions, they had audible voices, they had the specific covenant promise of God. What about me? How do I know God is not punishing me in this? How do I know he's actually for me and not out to make my life miserable? And I would say that's a fair question. How do you know this is true for you? What confidence, what proof, what evidence do you have today that God is for you and not against you? And I would point you to this. It's all the proof we have and it's all the proof we need. Look at Jacob's words again. My son shall not go down with you. His brother's dead. He's the only one left. If any harm happens to him, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Jacob would rather leave his entire family, all of his kids and all of his grandkids, exposed to the threat of death in a famine than let Benjamin go and risk any harm coming to him. But unlike Jacob who withheld his only son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God gave his only son for you. And he who did not spare his own son, his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? All things are not against us. All things are for us 
in Christ because God didn't spare his only son whom he loved and treasured with all of his heart. He is a generous father, a good God. He can be trusted. And so how can you be assured? By looking to Christ on the cross, seeing the beloved son of God innocently suffering, freely offered for your guilty soul. By looking to the empty tomb, death could not hold him down. The grave has no more power. Sin has no more sting. So if your conscience condemns you, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is all the proof you need that God means to reconcile you to himself. And if your circumstances perplex you or discourage you or terrify you, the perplexing reality of the Son of God hanging on the cross is all the proof you need that God can and will work all things for your good if you trust in him. So turn from every unbelieving thought and cling to Christ for the comfort and assurance your soul needs.